You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome into another edition of South Beach Sessions. I'm Chris Whittingham, and this week's interview is a sit-down with Jamel Hill. Now, this was recorded prior to Jamel Hill announcing her own podcast network with Spotify, which is going to be called The Unbothered Network. It is a podcast network for black women run by black women. But even though Dan doesn't talk to Jamel about it, it is kind of in keeping with the broader theme of the conversation, which is... Jamel accruing this influence and this power ever since leaving ESPN and how she's kind of managed post-ESPN life and how she's kind of become a trailblazer in this area, right, of sports punditry, cultural punditry, but centered around race and the difficulties therein and obviously all the public pressure that has come with it. But Jamel has obviously done incredible things and continues to do incredible things. So here's Dan getting a chance for a longer form conversation with Jamel Hill. Hello and welcome again to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Levitard and we've been using South Beach Sessions in recent weeks to introduce you to sort of the spirit of Meadowlark Media, to introduce you to some of our friends and the people we admire, the inspirations that are now in this house of creatives with us as we make stuff together in partnership because we love each other and because we just at this point in our careers want to work with people we enjoy working with because freedom matters and freedom matters to Jamel Hill and freedom matters to me. And so with that freedom, I wanted to partner with someone creatively that I know will represent us, Metal Arc Media, very well and will teach us things about her experience that perhaps all of us need to know as we continue to keep growing. She's had it tougher, Bomani Jones has said it, tougher than any of us in this business as a black woman pioneer who for many years was the only sports columnist anywhere in America walking into locker rooms and confronting criticisms and talking to people about what she'd written because she would get sports fans mad at her and athletes mad at her and management mad at her because she was an opinionated woman doing things, black woman doing things that other people weren't doing. I'm curious, Jamel, as we start here, and thank you for joining us. We are flattered to have you aboard the pirate ship that is Metal Arc Media, but I don't think people understand just how hard you had it. And I don't think maybe you understand how hard you had it because you lived it and have gotten sort of used to it. And I don't know how strong black women have to be in this country because they've gotten used to how unfair some things are. I guess I never really looked at it that way. Um, And uh, thank you for all those kind words that you said about me. But I guess when everything is about perspective to me and when I think about things that are really difficult and I guess to this degree, um, this can be both a, a plus and a minus. You know, I grew up kind of tough, Dan, in the sense that um, I have, you know, both my parents are recovering drug addicts. I saw some things that were, you know, very traumatic that I experienced. And so as a result, to me, that's a tough time. Okay. It's not a tough time to be called out by the president. It is not a tough time, even though I don't like it. And even though in many ways it does kill my spirit, 
when people write me and call me racial slurs and say other misogynistic things, I don't enjoy that part of what this experience is supposed to be. But when I think about how I spent my childhood, and that's not to say all of it was rough, but enough of it was rough to the point to where I, it's hard for me to look at what I've had to go through in this business as some terrible hardship when I know what real hardship is. That's not to minimize what I experienced and certainly not what Black women experience every day, but I just put it in a different bucket. That's not to say that it's not serious, but I look at the challenges that I faced as a professional. And I think those challenges, I was ready for them because of how I grew up. And maybe it's probably a little disassociation on my part, where if I think about it a little bit too long, it will settle in and really infect my spirit. And I try not to let it do that. But I guess I've been so long in this kind of uh, mode of just to keep going, keep plugging through keep getting to where I'm trying to get, keep opening doors, keep opening windows, keep changing rooms that I don't spend probably enough time thinking about what I've gone through. So to hear you put it in that perspective, in a way it's insightful, but it's also jarring. (laughs) So when you think of the things that shaped you, you go into your childhood more than you go to explosions with the president or leaving ESPN or some of the things that the public at large has seen you go through. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, you know, I, I started going to uh, therapy a few years ago, which a lot of people don't know. And I actually didn't go because I thought something was wrong. I, w- I went as more of an exploration because my mother said something to me. She said that she thought I was very angry and didn't know it. And I thought that she was wrong. And I was like, you know what, to prove her wrong, I'm going to go to therapy. And they're going to tell me I'm not angry. <laughs> okay. And so I started going to therapy and my therapist says something to me that has stayed with me uh, despite our many conversations. This has probably stayed with me the most. And that childhood lasts forever. That's what she told me. And I had never really thought about it that way. And she's right. Like most of the scars that I carry now are not from anything that's happened to me in the last five years. Now, some of them pick at the wounds that were already there for sure. But most of the stuff and the issues, if you will, that I have or the trauma I've experienced are from that. And I guess um, when those incidents started to happen with the president, with everything that happened at ESPN, my response to it and how I um, put it in perspective was very much linked to what I'd experienced growing up. Some of it just picked on those things, but they weren't the source of the origination of some of the things I felt, the betrayal, the mistrust, the distrust, you know, that stuff was not something that Donald Trump or ESPN created. Those things were created long before they ever came into the picture. I don't know my friend as well as I thought I did, because I think of you as brave and strong. And I I don't know if you've been hiding behind a smile or we just haven't had many of those situations. I would never describe you as angry. No, I don't think I am angry at all. Um, but I do think that the the wounds that haven't healed show up for me in different ways. I brood. I, um, despite the fact that I know people look at me as maybe a bit of an extrovert, that probably is not true, is that I'm fine in any room. Don't get me wrong. It's like I'm able to, I like socializing with people. I like people. 
I like being around people. Um, but there's always a part of me that I keep away from people uh, because, you know, it's just it's sort of a vulnerability issue that I've always had. I have a hard time doing that. And even though uh, being considered strong, and this is a narrative and a trope that Black women have been associated with, you know, what do you hear a lot about? Black girl magic, the strength of Black women, Black women as saviors. Those are all intended to be compliments. They're good compliments because it, it speaks to the strength and the fortitude of Black women. However, they're also very debilitating because most of us that have had to put on this armor, that have had to you know, really insulate ourselves and to power through a lot of very tough moments in our lives and in our society, we have no space for vulnerability, none at all. And because people so much believe in the magic of Black women and the strength, they don't see the sacrifice and they don't see what it takes to get to that. I was just talking about this recently um, and talking about sometimes the fractured relationship between Black women and white women. And one of those fractures is created by the perception that white women are to be protected and that they're delicate. But for Black women, we've never been viewed that way. We've always been viewed as tough, aggressive, things that are usually turned into negatives against us. And because we are treated more harshly and roughly, people get to thinking that we're bulletproof and that we can just make our way through any level of trauma in all situations. And while, again, I think sometimes people mean it as a compliment, but Black women deserve protection too. It's just that we so rarely get it because we always have to save somebody else when we're the ones who are drowning. And so while I wouldn't have said that I was certainly, you know, angry, but I do think I push past things a lot because I really don't necessarily want to deal with them or that I'm worried that if I start to deal with them and start to unpack things, that it's going to chip away at the strength and resolve that I've tried to build. So it's a balancing act. I don't think this is unique to how a lot of people feel or a lot of Black women feel in particular, but I think we, and my mother was this way and my grandmother was this way. I come from a generation of women who don't know uh, the meaning of folding and who have always per persevered. And that has been certainly a source of inspiration for me. But I also saw that when they needed somebody to lean on and to be there for them, usually that didn't happen. And I think that um, put them in some situations that were quite costly to their spirit um, and just to their well-being. And so um, that's why I say one of the best things I've ever done, if not the best thing I've ever done, was get married because it forced me into a, a vulnerable place that I didn't want to be in um, now that I am sort of accountable to another person, responsible to another person. It forced me to kind of deal with this other parts of myself that I hadn't really dealt with before. How hard was it for you to trust him? Very hard. It was very difficult. And um, I think, you know, I can't say that I'm all the way there. I mean, I trust him. So I don't, I don't mean to make this come off like I don't. I trust my husband implicitly. I think the sharing part was very hard. And I know we had some, you know, really tough conversations at various points about that because he, sometimes um, I think you get in relationships or even marriages with people who have the quality that you lack. And you hope that because they have that quality, it will sharpen what you don't have inside of you. And so what I love about my husband is that I don't ever have to guess how he feels about anything. 
He is great, a great communicator. He's great about sharing. Um, he lets me know how he feels. Like it's really awesome for our relationship. I am the opposite, <laughs> okay? And even though I'm in the business of communicating, I'm a shitty communicator, right? <laughs> and so, well, about the stuff that uh, hurts, about being vulnerable, about being exposed in the ways that a mar the best marriages require so that you can give your partner the Fabergé egg of your vulnerability and trust that that person will treat it with the respect it deserves. But that's why I asked you specifically, why was it hard for you to trust? I can't imagine how much armor you brought to that Jamel for, you know, I don't, I can't even imagine. How can I imagine that? Yeah, it was a lot. I brought a lot of armor into, you know, to our relationship. And I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing. And so um, when we, have you know as we had more conversations and got more serious i, I was always I, I saw myself developing a pattern where i was just holding a little bit back because i was afraid i didn't know but i didn't know the source of that fear or where it came from and you know what was going on there and i think a lot of it is had to do with the fact that um i saw early on and when i was growing up that vulnerability cost not being strong cost you and so I was in my mind creating this doomsday scenario of that, well, if I share this part or if I reveal this or if I'm vulnerable in this way, then this is going to make the entire house of cards fall. And it was just, you know, fear that was capitulated really for no reason. And so it was a, a work in progress. I'd like to think he would say I'm much better today than I was um, maybe as we were really getting to know each other and, and really falling in love. But um, it took some time. And uh, I'll admit I'm not all the way there yet, but I think it gets better. And he certainly inspires me with the way that he communicates. It's such a fascinating way to learn and things to learn about yourself. I think it was Tori Smith who told us that he had a real trouble saying I love you to anybody because in his childhood, I love you was always following someone getting beaten or something horrible had happened. So I love you was not... It did, he wasn't associating it with anything that was good. I'm curious, though, Jamel, beyond your relationship and love being a muse for you that has guided you with some freedom here in your post-ESPN waters, is there any point along the path where you looked up and were like, oh, wait, I'm a leader? No, and I do not still look at myself that way. I guess I look at myself as a as a co-conspirator more so than a leader. And I know people may, they, they can debate that with me, I guess. And maybe other people have different perceptions of, of what I do and would put me in that role. But I'm very uncomfortable when people call me a leader or an activist. I'm like, I'm not an activist. And maybe I have this response to that because I know and am friends with real activists and I know what they have done on the front lines but long before cameras came, long before activism suddenly became cool in 2020. They have poured so much sweat equity, their lives, their beings into making sure there are equal opportunities and better opportunities and fighting for people who are voiceless. I consider what they do to be leadership. I think of people um, like Alicia Garza, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She's an incredible woman. And I think of Latasha Brown, who is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter and Stacey Abrams. That's leadership to me. OK, um, what I'm doing is I consider to be just a small contribution. Um, you know, these women are changing history. I think I focused on what I could do well, which is try to change my industry, because I remember what it looked like when I 
first got into journalism and the media and, and back in 1997 as a professional. And it's unfortunate that it hasn't really changed all that much. There's been bits and spurts of progress followed by huge you know, sort of a huge retraction of progress. It's like, I'm tired of the inconsistency of it. So um, rather than depend on other people to suddenly have an awakening, new consciousness, I'm like, I'm gonna create this lane and we'll just see what happens. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm gonna do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm gonna go to my fridge and I'm gonna get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs and premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, we've talked about this before, okay, because Jamel has never considered herself a political person. She, like me, is a sports dork who got into this because she loves the sports dorkiness. But you're a leader, Jamel, whether it's in the industry or not, by being a trailblazer here, whether you want the responsibility of it or not, you're not wrong. Everything you said, yes, real activism, but you were on the front lines of something and became a symbol for something and have carried the responsibility of that. And you've led whether you like it or not. I mean, I don't know the distinction that you're making there, but OK, so, yes, you pale compared to Martin Luther King as well. But in sports writing circles, you were alone fighting for stuff long before it was in vogue, and yet that progress has still not come, and yet here you are still fighting for it. In this little arena, in this little realm, you're still doing your civil rights activism so much that people will say you're a racist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because what is the old adage uh, that for a lot of people, equality feels like oppression, right? <laughs> so, and the the cousin of that is the people who are the real racist are the people who actually have the nerve to talk about racism. Something, Dan, I know that you've heard probably the majority of your career, if not your life. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, because of, of how I hold leadership in such high esteem, I don't put myself in that group. And I guess because I'm the one that has to live with myself, I know how flawed and unorthodox and how ridiculous I can sometimes be. So I look at the the people who are on the front lines, who all the, you know, I, I'm happy to, to to supply the megaphone and to amplify. And I think really anybody who has a platform, especially one that has been able to grow as mine has been able to, 
is that that's the the debt that we owe as what is it Muhammad Ali said for our time here on earth you know that's what we owe and so um I think it's important to support and uh continue to amplify the work that's already kind of being done because I I know some people who have really laid it on the line um and I wouldn't be in the position to even have this platform if it wasn't for them so uh, I guess this is out of respect to them, much like how when people ask me about uh, or when I when I did his and hers and even when I did Sports Center, people would ask uh, me and also Mike um, about whether or not we considered ourselves journalists. And we used to jokingly refer to ourselves on TV as former journalists, because, you know, once you get into TV, we're in the entertainment bit now. It's like my job every day is to like maybe for an hour and make you think about something else, tell you about these crazy and silly and ridiculous things happen in sports and you know, discuss the nuances of the AFCEs. That's not necessarily a journalistic pursuit. It's an entertainment pursuit. And I didn't want to at all insult the real journalists out there who were going in the locker rooms, having to answer for things they'd written, having to answer for things they said in that dynamic where they have to be accountable to the people that they're actually saying these things about. As you know, when you're in a TV studio, you can say whatever crazy thing you want, okay? I mean, that's, you know, of course, some of it comes with some repercussions, but we're not acting as we used to act when we were in newspapers. And so I just felt like I would be um, taking a great liberty to uh, call myself a journalist. Even now, I say I um, practice at journalism. <laughs> I do a little journalism on the side. That's what I do. <laughs> what do you say to people? Because I shouldn't be surprised by this, Jamel, but the moment the moment that we announced that you were joining our team, it was a whole lot of, well, here come the politics. And I, I was naive about this, Jamel. Honest to God, I was. For as often as we were talking about race issues at ESPN, I really didn't see how we were being used as political tools. I really didn't see clearly the idea that any time a minority voice had a voice instead of being a face, ESPN became a political organization. So for the people who don't know you, for the people who don't look at you as anything other than a symbol, they don't humanize you in any way, what is the answer to she's a politician, she's in politics, she's a racist, she's – like what are, the, what are the reasonable answers or is there no reason there? If they're going to think that about you, there's not a conversation to be had about that in today's America where we're all using even different facts. There is a big part of it that it's hard to reason with people who – whose intent is to misunderstand, right? It is hard. But from time to time, when I feel like engaging, I will ask people who accuse me of being a racist, what have I said that was racist? Typically, I met with crickets because they can't really name it. They can't say it. I was like, I've certainly never called anybody a racial slur. And I know there's an element of power in racism. It's not all a, always about slurring people. But these days, uh, people, just like with this whole cancel culture idiocy. It's like, that's not cancel culture being held accountable and people asking you to explain why you did something. And if people decide not to f with you based off what you've shown them, that's their right. That's not canceling you. It's saying like, I have a choice whether to consume this or not. And my choice is not to do it because I don't like who you are. Okay. That's, that's fine. That's called life. And so all the things that I usually bring attention to that I'm really passionate about I'd like to think are common ground things. I'm very passionate about voting rights because throughout the history in this country, well, number one, 
people need to understand we didn't become a full democracy until everybody could vote. That's what a democracy is. So for a huge section of history in our country, it was not a democracy because only white men were allowed to vote. Half century, half half century. We've been a democracy for half a century. For Mm -hmm. half a century. So therefore, when I see this consistent dogged effort to negate the voices of people who had to go through, speaking of, you know, black people, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, um, literacy tests, they have been lynched, beaten, brutalized just for voting. You damn right, I feel a way about it. And I like to think that my fellow citizens could understand why that is wrong. But I think people get so defensive about when we call attention to how these systems have been working against certain certain people, working overtime to oppress and subjugate certain people that they feel as if you, if you bring awareness to this, if you call out what's happening, that you are somehow being the real racist. A lot of it is that I think that there is a, a grievance culture that has been really propagated, especially in the last five to six years, you see the majority of people in this country, our country's demographics are about to change. We all know this. In many pockets of America, they've already changed. And there's a lot of people who feel, who look at this in terms of scarcity, that if you begin to respect trans people and to guarantee that they have the same rights and the same access to humanity as everybody else, that means less humanity for me. It doesn't, equality doesn't work that way. It just means we all got the same stuff. And I don't know why this is such a difficult concept for people to grasp. And not only that, I mean, just in general, we'd be such a better society if we just minded our business. Like sometimes it's just that simple. Just mind your business. Does it hurt you? Does it have anything to do with you and how you do and provide for your family? Then shut up. What are you complaining about? All right. And so unfortunately, because we have been really groomed on this idea of American exceptionalism and all this other stuff, it just, it gets convoluted. So unfortunately, we're still having the same race conversations that we've been having for years and years and years. And at the root of it, we actually all have so much more in common than we do um, have differences. And I, I just would hope people can see past their own issues and defensiveness to see this. And therefore, until we do, I am the real racist in society, Dan. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that you were formed more during your hardships in youth, but how were you changed by what you went through publicly? What did you learn? Well, I think um, what it taught me was a different sense of responsibility. And, you know, to agree with you, like it or not, once that happened, uh, you know, once the all the, you know, the Donald Trump aftermath was the smoke had cleared and, and the rupture had occurred that people, whether I liked it or not, were positioning me and putting me in a different um, light, in a leadership light, as in uh, putting me on a in the realm of this person has something to say and I want to listen and hear what it is. So therefore, I had to be much more responsible with not just what I said, but what I supported, what I chose to say. And in a way, it's very frightening because 
you know, people, I know they have this assumption that at ESPN, you watch every little thing you say and all of that. And I, I got to say, I didn't really put that much thought into it. I mean, I knew innately what some of the rules were, which I chose to violate. Anyway, I knew what the rules were, chose to violate, but I, but I knew what they were. But I, I have to be much more careful now because when I tweet something, it's going to be a story for somebody somewhere, be it Breitbart, Fox, or even, you know, the Huffington Post, it doesn't matter. Like it is going to create some level of reaction. And so I have to be careful about that. And also one thing that does happen is that when you are in a leadership position, however you want to view that, is that people expect perfection. And whether you ask for the role or not, you have to then almost do an exhaustive uh, scrutiny of yourself uh, it, you know, look, even though I have been on social media, only I like I never went through the period like I wasn't a teenager on social media. Thankfully, I'm old as hell. So the entire time I've been on social media, I've been employed in a corporate media environment. So I've always had to watch what I said on, on a social media. However, norms and what I a lesson I learned not too long ago is that norms change. And there are conversations you could have on social media in 2009 or 2010 that you cannot have now. So in terms of those changes, the fact that I had to even go back and look through my social media history was like kind of scary. You know, it was just like, wow, because of the esteem or even to some degree, the fact that people are looking for reasons and excuses to diminish and belittle me and tear me down. I have to make sure I'm on point. And that's a different level of responsibility than I've ever had in my career. So it was grappling with that part. It was grappling with being considered a celebrity. Uh, you know, when you're at ESPN, of course that happens, but it's for different reasons. But now just the different kind of rooms that I am that I wasn't before, the fact that I'm in business for myself. So it's, it's me. And so, you know, it, it was just a, a lot more weighted responsibility now that I have to deal with than I did in previous times in my career. Can you explain a piece of that to me as a black woman where I'm not sure that people expect perfection? All I expect is authenticity. All I want is someone who's real because nobody's perfect. Well, here is maybe the innate generational trauma that all black people deal with. We always live in fear that everything we've built and accumulated can be taken away at any moment. And I know to some degree, a lot of people probably feel this way, but I think it's much more heightened with us because we have seen just how quickly some of us can fall and we know a second chance isn't coming, that there's no rehabilitation tour that will welcome us back. Now, yeah, there are certainly exceptions to that, but generally speaking, the punishment is far more severe for us than it is for other people. So the scrutiny is different, the reaction is different, the outrage is different. And so knowing that it's much more acute, you you feel as if you have to be much more careful because you have so much more to lose. And so I still live with that fear. I still, as much as I am enjoying this new part of my career and my life and the freedom and the liberation I'm able to feel and being able to work with like-minded people like yourself and, and Skipper and others, as much as I enjoy that, um, and that really fuels me, yeah, at the back of my mind, it's like, all this shit can be gone. All it takes is 
whatever, whatever doomsday scenario I want to invent, that's all it takes. And so I think just as a black woman uh, in particular, like we just feel the weight of that. I mean, this is a, a, a small example, but you look at say Kanye West, right? He has obviously drawn a lot of ire because of his association with Donald Trump. A lot of people were like, quote unquote, canceling him. Uh, that never really quite happened. He's a, you know, a billionaire, at least according um, to, to, to Forbes. I'm not and sure. He is there. he a billionaire or is he broke? I don't well, know. He, I don't think he's which, worth 6.6 billion. Well, which one billion, is it? I'm very right? confused with Kanye. He's making, he's like, he makes it very confusing. Is he broke or is he worth $6 billion? Which is it? I don't think he's worth 6 billion. Like Forbes is like, all right, we, you know, might have oversold that one. All right. But he's worth a lot of money. Put it like that. His association with Donald Trump didn't really hurt him, at least not financially. Like people still want to be in business with Kanye. Artists still want to perform with him. So I think about him. And then I think about an artist, definitely lesser known. So I will admit that she didn't have as much equity in music as Kanye West did, but Chrisette Michelle. And if people are like, who the hell is Chrisette Michelle? But she was somebody who performed during Donald Trump's inauguration. And she has been, you want to talk about cancel? She has been canceled. All right. I mean, she talked about the backlash that she faced just for performing. We don't even know if this woman even supports Donald Trump. In her mind, she just took a gig and that was it. And she said her family disowned her. Okay. And in the music business, her career has just basically been over with because of a performance at Trump's inauguration. All right. And Meanwhile, Kanye West is out here living his best life. And maybe for a lot of people, it's much easier to cancel a Chrisette Michelle than a Kanye West. But her, what happened with her really struck me in the sense that that's how quickly things can be over. And that that's how easily things can be taken away. And that's not, that's not some kind of um, commentary on, on uh, cancel culture. It's just for success for Black people, it's always precarious. We always see the asterisks the loopholes and the ways in which we can be undone. And we feel like it's not going to be there forever. So that level of anxiety is something that I live with and deal with all the time. That's a shitty thing to have in the middle of freedom, that fear, because you got real freedom, you got real power, but with it came that responsibility and that very real fear got bigger. Yeah. Well, but that's also why I got to ride this bitch to the wheels falls off. All right. It, it is. I mean, in a way, well, yeah, it is a lot to deal with, but there was also another tiny chunk of it that made me even more fearless. Cause I'm like, if this is all I have, then I'm just going all out. And it's, it's a mentality that I always had, even when I was at ESPN is that if I was going to go down for something, I wasn't going to go down for something that, somebody else told me to do or trying to live up to somebody else's version of who I should be. I'm just going to go down just purely on my own stupidity by myself. All right. And so it has been, um, while it's created some moments of anxiety and just a general sense of it, it's also created a sense of fearlessness in me. And so now I just push as hard as I can to make sure these things that I feel like are legacy things, not my legacy, but the legacy for black women in this business can be built upon that I need to get this accomplished before I finally stop doing what I'm doing or when the platform diminishes and I'm no longer considered considered relevant to people. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What mistakes did you make in the initial rounds of freedom that you can give me some advice on where you break free from ESPN and you sort of, I imagine, if it's happened for you the way that it happened for me, you sort of think you have some power on the front end and then very quickly realize you have some power once you've gotten free of the corporate structure, but I didn't know it for sure. I doubted it. I haven't talked to you about this, but you did it before we did. And in that respect as well, you're a leader because you showed us, well, wait a minute, this whole game is changing. Everything around here is changing where Jamel Hill just did something that was inadvertent, uh, a little stronger than she was. She didn't expect to be fired. She didn't realize, or not fired, but she didn't expect it to result in what it resulted in, which is, okay, that's it. It's over for you at ESPN. And then something else was birthed from that. But where along the path and what advice do you have for us? Did you make the mistakes with the freedom? So I think the biggest mistake that I made early on is I said, yes more than i said no and um what you quickly realize is that while you do have to be multi-dimensional because that's just where the business is you know it, it it's it and the great thing is that having been at espn it prepares you for that and and dan you're extremely multi multi-dimensional i mean you've written podcast you radio um you're creative so like the nimbleness of that w- will suit you extraordinarily well however I think what happens is that um, it's a little bit like you're given a Ferrari and being put on the Autobahn and you have to even still manage your time and manage your expectations. And so I think I just said yes way too often and found myself extremely tired. And I'm like, I shouldn't be this tired when I've just. Oh, but you had to be scared. You had to be scared that it was all going to evaporate, right? Like you have to be saying yes because you're like, wait a minute, I just left the safest platform in sports. I have to keep saying yes. I can become a nobody tomorrow no matter how much of a somebody I think I am. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big big concern and a fear is that, you know, the platform is going to evaporate and that didn't happen uh, at all, obviously, in my case. So as I've been able to revel in this freedom and this liberation, I have gotten way more comfortable saying no. Now I say no more than I say yes. And the other thing too, and I, I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily make this mistake, but I think because I did do this, it's made this experience more enjoyable and far outweigh any anxiety I may feel about. Okay, got to take advantage of this now. Got to do this now. This and that is that you really should just only work with people you with. I mean, it's it's true. It's like. You really should just work with people you like. Working with people you like kills so much nonsense, right? Oh, Jamel, and I know Jamel, that that's all I'm this... doing. That's all I'm doing the rest of the exactly. life. Like so I you doing, figured that out. There, I am not working right with any assholes. Never again. Yes. Never again in my life. Never again. Totally, and that's key. Keep the assholes out of your life, and doing that has been so mentally liberating. And I know that people have this idea that, you know, you gotta be careful about working with friends. And that's true, it can lead to some awkwardness at times, depending on the level of friendship, and I get that. 
I would so prefer to work with any and all of my friends than I would with people I don't know and people who might be lurking assholes and I just haven't seen it yet. And so it's better, you know, because I think as long as you care about the friendship, you'll be able to salvage it regardless of whatever work issues that may come up. So you did the number one thing. You smartly surrounded yourself with the same people that you've kind of been with for a long time and that will create some comfort. But like learning how to say no, understanding that you still deserve a full life, you know, is that in the beginning stages, you're going to work really hard to try to understand the entrepreneurial part of this. And I know that's a big, you know, that's a big chunk of, of what Skipper's responsibilities are, but the hardest transition I had to make was from just being the talent and the creator to then having to learn about the business. And look, payroll taxes is real. I'm just telling everybody, <laughs> they are real, man. Like, I, man, that first payroll tax I had to cut, I was like, people do this all the time? <laughs> like, what? Yes, the, and finding out what everyone's benefits need to be, that's a whole lot oh of fun. Oh my God. You, you, you have, have you had a lot of employees? Have you had to hire a lot of people? Like that, well, part, that part has to have grown on you in a sprawling way you weren't necessarily expecting, right? You have to have some people that you delegate stuff to. Yeah, I do. Um, but even still that, but that's the kind of tricky part when you are the business, you know, Dan, you are the business. It's like South B sessions, you're the business, right? So you can only delegate so much because so much of the operation of the business depends on the content you produce, what comes out of your mouth. So it's like, I can't, if I have an appearance, I got to do on CNN. I can't tell my assistant to do it. Like I have to do it. So it's like, you know, yeah. So it's, that's what makes it such a different kind of business. So in that my time management, um, had to greatly improve. And I had to realize that time is money and that some things that while I may have the heart to do it, while I may want to, they're just not possible. And I had to be honest with myself about what my real bandwidth was. So I would say to you, Dan, be honest with yourself about your bandwidth. And even when it comes to doing things for, you know, friends in the in in this business, friends that are not already working with you, of course, uh, you have to be very protective of your peace. And so my advice to you is to be protective of your peace. I am thrilled that you are one of the people who has decided to make us one of your yeses here, because I know that you have learned to be discerning on that front. And I am thrilled that I imagine, Jamel, I, do, I can't know this for sure, but that we're getting the happiest and strongest version of your professional and creative self, that this part of you can be your prime because the things you've learned and you care about when you create them, they now matter to you in a way that they never have before. So I assume that what is joining us is not only the pioneering Jamel Hill, but the best version of Jamel Hill professionally because you have freedom and strength and experiences and you've learned just so much. And now you can do work where it becomes shared joy with the people you're creating with. It doesn't have to be a suffering and it doesn't have to be a fight against people. You could just make shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the best part. Um, don't worry, Dan, you are not getting Jordan with the Wizards. You're not getting Iverson <laughs> with the Memphis Grizzlies. Okay. No disrespect to either of those. <laughs> but, but you are. This is the happiest, strongest version of yourself professionally, I have to imagine, right? Like how, how I can't imagine that you've gotten more fulfillment from the work that you're about to do and are presently doing. 
Yeah, no, this is really it. And and a lot of it has boils down to the fact that there are very few things that I don't enjoy doing. I mean, some of the minutiae stuff you don't always love, i.e. learning about payroll taxes. <laughs> like, you don't love that part of it or these, uh, you know, these conversations I have with my accountant where my eyes are just rolling in my oh, head. Oh, no, I'm, I'm having like, too many of those. I'm having too many of those. The- yeah, it's like, I don't love, <laughs> love those. Oh, it's love that part of it. It's the least fun part. But um, if even I can find enjoyment on some of the least fun parts, because at the end of the day, I'm creating opportunities, you know, for other people. Um, and, but I mean, but then you, and actually it seems like when I, when I broke out of ESPN, I should have actually called you because even while we're still a part of ESPN, the way that you had siphoned yourself out and build your own universe would have been very actually helpful for me to understand because the other thing that took some time for me to get used to was the fact that now as an entrepreneur, that other people's livelihoods were depending on me. And you went through that and obviously still go through that. That's a part of the responsibility of what you're building and what you'd already built. And I didn't, I was new to that responsibility. And then you you start saying how your success impacts their livelihood. And it's great. And it's um, really humbling and really grateful that I can create those lanes and avenues for other people. But at the same time, you also feel the responsibility of it. If shit goes bad, then it might be some people out of work. That's why I'm you calling know? all my strong ass friends to get over here and make <laughs> shake this money tree. That's the reason yeah. every that's all the reason that every that I'm talking to you right now because I want to shake this money and content tree for everybody. This is the family business for me, Jamel, and it sounds like it's about to be that for you in a lot of ways or already is and and more so, right? Because I gotta imagine this podcast deal where you are giving voice and discovering young black women to add to this conversation. Like I, I can't imagine there's a whole lot that you could be doing better with your time right now, spiritually than dedicating yourself to that. And it's why it's laughable that you say you're not a leader because you have been for a long time in this industry. And I'm thrilled that we get to enjoy whatever these years bring us. Don't get it all taken away. Don't do something stupid on Twitter. Just say, stay strong and happy and let's make cool shit together. Yeah, that's all I want to do is 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 make cool shit. Is like that's it. And um, you know, I uh, I, I don't envision um, you know kind of destroying what I've been able to to, to build. But I you know I, I just feel much a much deeper responsibility. I think I think what I was trying to say, um, and I hate that it's taken me an hour to figure it out, is that I've always had purpose in this profession. You know, my purpose was to tell stories, was to discover and unpack things was to contextualize things for the people who are reading or the people who are watching me. But now the purpose is different. The purpose is more defined. It's more nuanced. It's more personal, I think, than it's ever been. And that is a huge part of of the fuel that really um, guides me uh, these days. It's just, uh, I was talking to, um, excuse the name drop, I'll pick it up after I say it. I was doing a um, podcast with Issa Rae. And one of the things I asked her, I was like, does it, because she's wildly successful. She just signed an eight-figure deal um, with Warner Brothers. I asked her if the success felt like she thought it would. And, you know, she essentially said it didn't because the thing is you're on to the next thing all the time that you can't really enjoy 
the process of what's happening because it's like, oh, okay. So when you ask me about being a leader, I'm just like, oh, that's just this thing I did. Now I'm on to the next thing. Like, all right, I'm on to creating this or doing this. And so I, I do have to get out of that mode um, a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, out here, as far as I'm concerned, I'm out here grinding. Like, I feel like I did my first year out of college and working at the News and Observer in Raleigh. And, oh, but it makes um, such a difference, Jamel. It makes such a difference. You say it's personal. I'd say spiritual. But the idea that now you're grinding. It is a calling, But yes. you're grinding for you now. That changes everything, Jamel. You're the corporation. Like, you're grinding for the shit you care about. That, that'll keep you. That'll keep your. That's why you're not tired. Like, that. Yeah. that's the reason that you can have energy for days is because you're grinding for you and the things that you believe in. And now we are merging these spiritual pursuits and I can't wait to see what it births. So Jamel, thank you. We'll be having you more on the radio show and you got to be around. Uh, we got to do more things like live view the Aretha Franklin funeral because <laughs> the, our conversations have been too serious the last few times. Like yeah, I want right. I want to, I, I like doing therapy fun. with you, but I also like, because I'm fascinated by your entire career path, but we're going to make uh, make cool things together. Come on the radio show. I've got a thousand questions for you. So let's get you uh, a part, a little more a part of this family. Thank you for being on well, with well, us. Well, maybe it won't have to be a celebrity death necessarily. Right, right. Maybe, maybe not. Right. Maybe I, I chose the wrong words. Let's kill Aretha Franklin again so that we can have fun on the radio. <laughs> See you later, Jamal. <laughs> See you later. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.